Good morning. Well, um, this morning should be interesting. I had about an hour and 15 minutes sleep last night, so um, I'm not real sure what's getting ready to happen. So bear with me a little bit. Um, We had some sick children in our home, and so daddy didn't sleep much. Um, And I'm feeling a little bit under the weather today, so we should pray. We should pray. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, if you don't draw us near, if your nearness is not our good today, then we, we really have no hope. So God, we ask that today that your spirit would fall upon us that as your church, we would be knit together for your mission. That we would be sanctified and called and sent. Lord, today we bring all of our frailty, all of our weakness, all of our sin. And we lay it before you. And we ask you to forgive us. Cleanse us. And make us whole. And we pray you would do this for your namesake and your glory. And we pray this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. It's sexy among our generation <clears throat> to talk about ditching institutional religion and starting a revolution of real Christ followers. It's often expressed in a very idealistic way that paints the first century church in a nostalgic way as an example of community and perfection. Groups of people meeting in their homes, serving one another, doing life together, experiencing God in a way that it started simple and organic. Far from modern trappings of institutional religion, in the confines of the church. Yet when we begin a study of 1 Corinthians, we come across a first century church that's anything but ideal. Imagine with me a church where powerful leaders promote themselves against each other, each with his own little band of merry men. A place where one of these men could have an affair with his stepmother and instead of the church disciplining him, many boasted of his freedom in Christ to justify his behavior. Where believers, rather than sharing their possessions, sued one another to possess more possessions. Imagine a fellowship where members cut in line during communion just to get drunk off the wine. And while others visited temple prostitutes and worshipped idols. And where, as a backlash to such unbelievable immorality, 
Other right-wing factions arose and promoted celibacy. The complete abstinence from sex for all believers. And I'm not really sure how that gained any traction, but it did. Others debated how decisively a new Christian would break from his pagan past. And to add to the chaos and the confusion, there was rampant disagreements about the roles of men and women in the church and the use of prophecy and speaking in tongues. All the while, this church was unwilling to submit to Paul's spiritual authority. They were carried away by their sin and the influences of the culture around them. So 1 Corinthians, the study, that, the study that we begin today, was a letter written from a church leader to a young church that was not the model of community or perfection. Paul knew the church very well in Corinth. He planted it. And Acts 18 tells us that he spent a year and a half in Corinth, laboring to establish and strengthen the church. And Corinth as a city was a seaport city. And it became both prosperous and licentious. It was an ideal place to plant a church. It was perfect. It was a cosmopolitan city full of many different ethnicities and religious ideas was pagan. It was a hub of trade and business and travel and culture. It was a strategic port and a crossroads. It formed an amazing launching point for the gospel. If the gospel could win Corinth, it could win anybody, anywhere. So Paul's letter was written from Ephesus in a response to a letter that he received from this fledgling church. And while the letter is filled with Paul's responses to real-life situations going on in the church, this long, profound letter was sent to teach the Corinthians about the church, what they were by nature, and how they ought to live as God's people. And so, with that being said, let's open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. First nine verses is what we'll be diving into today. Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you were not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ. Our Lord. Paul starts 
his letter to the church at Corinth with these words. Paul, called by the will of God to be apostle, to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. One of Paul's primary themes throughout the first chapter is what it means to be called. In verse 1, he describes himself as one that is called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. In verse 2, he describes the Corinthian believers as saints by calling. And in verse 9, Paul closes our section today referring to those whom God called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ. For Paul, God's calling to salvation and to his position as an apostle was essential to his life and ministry. It was a continual reminder that his life and the life of the church are anchored in the will of God. They're anchored there. No matter what storms come, no matter what happens, this is where Paul's anchor was. Have you you ever noticed how excited people get when their phone rings. I mean, I've seen people run through the house to the phone. My junior high nephews will knock you out of the way to get to the phone when it rings. I've seen people jump over couches. I've seen women dump everything out of their purses to get to a phone before it quits ringing. Why is that? Why is the excitement too much? I think it's just because who knows what lies on the other side of that, that little ring. There might be great wisdom coming your way. There may be love on the other line. There may be joy, inexhaustible joy. There may be intrigue. There may be adventure. The unknown. But one thing's for sure. Someone is calling you. You see, all calls originate with a caller. The call lets us know that someone from the outside has turned his or her attention toward us. We can't call, well, I guess you could call yourself, but that would be pretty lame. I guess with our technology, you could figure that out. But the caller's initiative is everything. God is the ultimate caller. And Paul's call did not orbit around his ability, his vision, or his performance. Paul saw his calling centered not on him, but in the grace and the will of God who called. This was the persevering power of the gospel in Paul's life. He knew that even if the church didn't listen to him, the call he received was by the will of God. He is in the position he's in because the sovereign God of the universe, the one that orchestrates all of human activity, had placed him there as a proxy, an ambassador. He was called by God to be his authoritative messenger. It was Paul's anchor. 
It was Paul's identity. You see, after establishing his apostolic authority in the will and calling of God, Paul looks in verse 2 to the community of believers and he calls them the church of God that is at Corinth. Maybe. He does in verse 2. You ought to look in your Bible. And if that catches up, that's good. But listen, he refers to the church. He refers to them as the church. And what does that mean? It means the assembly of the called out ones. He uses that language carefully. He very much understands what he's saying. It forms the very understanding of what God has done and is doing. God is calling. Paul does not refer to this community of God's people at Corinth as part of the church, but as the church of God at Corinth. It's amazing. It's God's church. It's not Paul's church. It's not your church. It's not my church. It's not Larry's church. It is God's church. It is his church. He is the caller, the initiator. So what happened? How did God establish his church in Corinth? What did he do? Let's continue to look at verse 2. What did he do? How did he make them into the assembly of the called out ones? They were sanctified in Christ Jesus. In Christ, God set them apart. There was a time when he set each of them apart. And they made a distinct cut and break from their old way of life. Filled with unbelief and sin. And there was a drastic realignment that took place in their life and ours. When God gave us a new life and a faith and an obedience. God sanctified them in Christ Jesus. There was a moment for all of us where the power of Christ's work on the cross provided a decisive break from the power of sin in our life. Doesn't mean we won't be tripped up. Doesn't mean we won't have hard times. Doesn't mean we won't be tempted. But the power to rule over your life had been broken by the work of Christ. Been sanctified, set apart. And how did that happen? Look in verse 2. How did it happen? He called them. He called them to be saints. He summoned them. And when he did, look what they did. They called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an amazing thing. So how does God call his church into existence in Corinth, in Wake Forest, wherever he's working. How does he do that? How does he make you and me and this ragtag bunch of Corinthians into Christ followers and God's church? He calls them. By his will, he calls them and they respond. This was no meager invitation to fellowship with his son. This He came after them. 
He came after us. This isn't something that you just got in your mailbox that you could choose to... I don't think I'm going to that party tonight. Thanks, but no thanks. He came after them. He came after you. He came after me. I don't know about you, but I did not want to be called a saint. I did not want to have fellowship with Jesus. But for some crazy reason, only known to him, he wanted me. And he broke through my hard heart. He chased me down. He overwhelmed me. And he sanctified me. And he opened my eyes to the glory of Christ. So much so that I would call on the lame of the Lord and be saved. Some of you here today are much like I was. You don't really want fellowship with Christ. You don't, you don't want to be called saint. You don't want to be holy. But for some crazy reason, God is pursuing you. And there will be no grace and no peace in your life until you respond and you call on the name of the Lord. You see, the church becomes the church not because of human action, but by the supernatural work of God. In verse two, we see that God calls each individual And that person responds by calling on the name of the Lord. Now, why is that so important? Why is it important to you? Why is it important to me? When you walk out of here today, why will that be important? Because just like Paul's life, this is the persevering power of the gospel for your life. You are in the position you're in because the sovereign God of the universe, the one who guides all human affairs, placed you here He sanctified you. He called you. And you responded. You called on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you became part of the church of God. This is your identity. Not by performance, not by ability, not by some superior wisdom and knowledge, or even by chance. You are the church of God by the will of God. And as such, we are sanctified in Christ Jesus and saints by calling or called to be holy. The church at Corinth had been redeemed by the Christ's work on the cross, set apart by God, called out by a holy, as a holy people. No matter the problems they were experiencing, Paul saw them 
listen to me, Paul saw them how? He saw them in light of, not of, in light of their current performance or their shortcomings. He saw them in light of what God proclaimed them to be as a result of God's calling on them. Yet the Corinthians were still living as if they were not sanctified, if they had not been called. They were not living as those called to be holy. What about you? Are you living out of a right understanding of God's calling of you? Are you worried? Do you think about living a holy life? Not as some right-wing fanatical guy who makes all kinds of rules he can't keep. Or not a guy who's just free willy with his life because he's saved by grace. How about somebody who has been sanctified by the work of Christ and has been called to be holy? as an act of worship and response to whom God has made you. Why won't some of you get meaningfully plugged into a small group? Why is that? Is it because you'll be found out? Because you would rather hold on to your sin than grow in holiness? Or why do you go to small group and not long to be transparent? Lay your sin before your brothers and sisters so that they can pray for you. Confess your sin so that you'll be forgiven. Why why would you do that? Why would you whitewash your sin and not put it right out in front? Are you more fearful of man than you are the God who called you? When I do these two things, that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm hiding in my sin and I'm more fearful of man than I am of a holy God who called me to be like him. Here's, those of you that have had questions of the will of God for your life, I've got a verse for you. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 7. For this is the will of God. Pretty straightforward. You want to know what the will of God is? The will of God is your sanctification. That is, that you would abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. That is the will of God for your life. The rest of the details really aren't that important. 
In the last part of verse two, Paul reminds the Corinthian church that they're part of a bigger picture. It's not just what's happening in their little place, but they are connected across time and space with everyone who has called on the name of the Lord. So what have we learned in, the, in two verses? We've gotten through two verses. We're in trouble. We have learned that the church is created by God's initiative as he calls and he sanctifies and he assembles his people. That the church is universal, crossing time and space, but finds its primary expression in the local congregation. And that's where Paul turns in verse four to this primary expression in the local congregation. And if you quickly scan verses four through nine, and if you are just using some of those great Bible study skills that you would learn in life change, if you would go observation, if you would observe what word pops out throughout these verses, it's the word you. Paul uses a plural pronoun throughout this passage to refer to the church. Once again, for you folks that grew up in the South, it's y'all. It's a, it is used for a reason. You see, Paul sees the gifts of God's grace listed in these verses to be corporate. That the gifts of God's grace find their full expression here. with all of us gathered, assembled. Therefore, what is true about the church at Corinth is also true about the church at North Wake. You see, in everything, Paul says, you were enriched in him. The church was enriched in him in everything. In all speech and knowledge, in Christ Jesus, the church has been given all that she needs in the areas of word and knowledge. As Peter would say in 2 Peter 1.3, his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Through what? Through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. God has given us everything we need. He has given the church everything she needs. She doesn't need to go find great gurus with new wisdom. God has given her everything she needs for life and godliness. Verse 6 tells us that at Corinth, the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in them. You see, we don't lack anything. We're enriched in every way by the testimony of Christ that is being confirmed in us on a daily basis. The gospel. The gospel has been confirmed in you. It's all you need. Verse 18, although we're not going that far, says this, for the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The gospel is enough. 
And then in verse 7, Paul says something amazing. He says that you, the church at Corinth, are not lacking in any gift. Not lacking in any gift. Paul believes that the local church, potentially by God's organization, has every spiritual gift that it needs for God's mission in that place. And we should be praying for that mature expression to happen here. This is where, once again, we have to understand calling. You see, God is sovereignly building his church. He's placing each stone in a specific place, one on top of another. In First Peter, Peter would say, and coming to him as the living stone rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. God is building his church. He's, giving, he's given us, the local church, every gift. And he is placing us together in the body for a specific reason, each one complementing another in order to complete the whole. We are being equipped for God's mission Thus we can say with all biblical fidelity that the church at Corinth and at North Wake is fully endowed with all the gifts of God's grace. If we are to know the fullness of God's blessing, if we're to experience all of his gifts of grace, which are ours in Christ, it has to be done together in fellowship. No one in this room is omni-gifted. Hate to burst your bubble. You know, I used to think I was. Um, The elders have helped me with that. I'm not there. I was naive. But in great maturity, as God has brought me into this body and built me and grown me, I see I have some gifts. There are a lot more I don't have. Therefore, we need one another. For us to glorify God at North Wake in the way that we're supposed to, we need one another. It's the beauty of a plurality of elders. Larry is not omni-gifted. He has an amazing gift. He is not omni-gifted. Therefore, to build a church just on Larry would be short-sighted and unbiblical. See, God is placing us all together. Why did you get to Wake Forest at this time and place? How did you come to this fellowship? How did you, how were you ingrained into us? By God's calling and his sovereign will on your life. You can try to get outside of God's sovereign will, but I don't think you're going to do it. You can run. You can do 
the Jonah thing didn't work so well. It won't work that well for you. So here's my question. If that's what God is doing, where are you engaged? What has God brought you here to contribute? What is it? Where are you to serve? Or did you come here to be served? What part of the church budget is your responsibility? If you don't give your two little widow's mites, your copper coins, how will the mission of God at North Wake be hindered? Forty-two percent of our congregation is seminary. You have no money. You have no money. And if you're going into the ministry, you will have no money. But that does not excuse you. Because God loves a cheerful giver. And he has placed you here for a reason. Not by mistake, not to ride on the coattails of other people, but to be a vibrant member of this body. That other 60%, God has placed you in a job to earn income for the glory of the king. It's a high calling. And the church can't move forward without it. If you don't grow and train to be a leader in this church, who will? Who has your gift? Who has your passions? Who has the access to the network of relationships in which God has placed you in? Those of you sitting in these seats that have been here for years and say, ah, you know what, small group leadership, no thank you. Wrong. you're hindering the mission of God at North Wake because you've chosen to sit on the sideline. If you don't learn to disciple another man, another woman, one-on-one, how will the church fulfill the mission of God to multiply disciples? How will that happen? You trained for your job. How long did you go to college? How long did you guys spend chasing after a master's of divinity degree, it's 96 hours or 92 hours. That's forever. Yet, in all of those exploits, you've not learned how to come alongside another brother and encourage them in the gospel and grow them in the gospel. When are you going to step away from being a taker and grow up and be a giver. When is it? See, as we look through these verses, we see with greater and greater clarity what Paul sees in the church. Paul sees the church as it is in Christ before he looks at anything else. 
he sees something beautiful. He sees a local congregation that is the church of God that has been sanctified and called to be holy that plays a significant part in God's redemptive plan and has been enriched as a corporate body by God's grace and not lacking in any spiritual gift. So my question to you on the backside of that, of that is that how you see North Wake? Is that the lenses in which you look at this bride, this body? Or do you see warts? And blemishes. Is that what grabs your attention? Look, nobody knows the warts and blemishes around here better than I do. I think about them every single day. They are right here in front of me every single day. If anybody has the right to be depressed today, it's me. I don't have the right, though. God has made her beautiful. She is his bride. She is his church. He will... He will present. Christ will present his bride without spot, wrinkle, or blemish. She is holy. And she will be holy. So today, how do we have hope when we look around and we're a mess and the church is a mess and everything looks more like Corinth than what Paul has described here? What do we do with that? Where do we find hope? The hope is in the last two verses. God will confirm you to the end. Blameless in the day of the Lord Jesus. You see, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So when you fail, when you fall, there's grace. There's mercy. And the, what propels us, what helps us understand is that we will be sustained not by our performance, but by God's faithfulness. That brings us hope. That is our anchor. God has sanctified you. He has called you. You have responded. God is faithful. And he will not let you go. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, today, we've been confronted by a lot of things. Lord, would you take them and in the quietness of these couple minutes right now, would you speak to us? Lord, would you speak to those in this room that have not responded to your call? Lord, we ask that you would not quit pursuing them, but that you would pursue them all the more by your grace and that you would draw them to yourself and that they would respond and call on the name of the Lord Jesus and be saved. And we pray that for those of us in this room who have been called, who are sanctified, 
Lord, would you teach us how to put sin to death, to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, and to be a vibrant part of your church. Lord, would you glorify yourself in your church? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.